Welcome to the New Abbey Podcast. I'm Darren McKenna, pastor of New Abbey North Hollywood. We are in our next series, and today we're talking about owning your identity. And let me give you a question to get started with. What is something in your life that you're either worried or excited about? Brittany and I say all the time, the magic of this place, it's not music, it's not the sermons, it's not communion. Everything that we're doing is setting up that. Real conversations with real people and everything is to facilitate that. I'm just watching over here as my wife is empathetically listening to Aaron. And if you've ever met my wife before, she's like the greatest listener ever on planet Earth. Yeah. Seriously, I was just, yeah. She really is. She makes me feel like a million dollars, right? Every day I wake up, I'm like, I am awesome. This is, this is good. I said, Darren was at our house yesterday, and he's like, Carissa gives the best hugs. I'm like, what my wife can do in a hug is what took me 10 years to learn theologically. So, it's true. So we are in this next series because we're trying to ask these questions about where are we gonna go and how do we actually mature as human beings? It's one thing to find healing, which is what we do in this room all of the time. It's another thing to move towards transformation, to say, I'm gonna do something with the magic of healing that's happening in my life. But eventually, we have to allow the healing that is happening in our lives be healing for the rest of the world. And that is maturity. So what we're doing with maturity today as we think about what's next is we want to think about the power of identity and how each of us come into a realization of our own identity, but we do that through belonging. So to do that, we gotta talk about some things. We gotta talk about three boxes. Again, if you haven't heard of Richard Rohr in here, I don't know where you've been. (laughs) We gotta talk about shadow sides. We gotta talk about the fact that it's okay. We're gonna talk about some scripts. Then we're gonna talk about journeys. Then we're gonna talk about bottoms. (laughs) Rock bottoms. (laughs) This is not my part of the sermon. And if you don't know what that is, uh, Google it. (laughs) No, don't Don't Google Google it. it. (laughs) Don't Google it. It's not that. It's not that. I say you Google it. (laughs) Yeah. Then we're talking about Enneagram, uh, the long journey home. And then if really the fact of it's okay, then maybe we can finally believe that God's okay. Identity is something that's really important for me in my life right now because I have three beautiful children. Caden, my oldest, five and a half. Bryce, my middle, three and a half. And Bella, who's one and a half. And it's an adventure to see who each of them are becoming. Caden is the cognitive, cerebral one who is using his words to articulate things at all time and to control every last move of his brother and sister because he's the oldest and he has the verbal capacity to do it, my friends. He is the kid who you're going to put in school, and every teacher's like, the whole room will be chaos, but he's just staring me straight in the eye (laughs) because he wants to please every teacher, and he doesn't miss his homework, right? That'd be like God forbidden in his life. He's beautiful. Then there's Bryce. (laughs) 
I wonder whose son he is. I don't know. We have the same big heads, it's great. And he is just a sweaty, hot mess. But he's a lover, and he can articulate his emotions in a way that our, our, his other siblings cannot. He feels things, he knows empathetically how you're doing, and he lives his life vicariously through Tyrannosaurus Rexes. <laughs> and when you hear roaring going on around here, it's Bryce. <laughs> so true. And then there's Bella. She's just happy and joyous and gregarious, and she has no concerns in the world because her brothers are always in her face. They're always doing everything for her, right? And now she's getting sassy about what kind of shoes she wants to wear in the morning. <laughs> and it's beautiful. It's beautiful that each of my kids are so incredibly different. And what we hope for in our image of God is to believe that God looks at each of us as God's children. The good news that we say around here all of the time is that the divine looks at each and every one of us and says, you are my daughter or you are my son whom I love and I enjoy you. Because there's a lot of us who didn't hear those words from our parents. There's a lot of us, that's the thing that we most need for our identity, to simply believe that we are loved children and that we are enjoyed and that each of our narratives are incredibly different. And this God celebrates that reality because none of our narratives in and of themselves tell the full story of God. It takes 7.5 billion human stories living and thriving at once to tap into this incredible bigger story of God. And isn't that such better good news? And isn't that the story that we all care about? A God who inclusively loves all of us and that the thing that this God is most interested in is not how much Bible you'll know, or theology or tradition that you live into, but that you would begin to trust that this God's spirit is already within you and that you would listen well to what that spirit is telling you so that you could fully live as a human being. That's where the magic is at. And so as we think about our own identities today, I wanna to go back to this idea of that there are these three boxes that we all live into. The first box is this box of construction. Construction is where we would all hope to start in some ways. We know that when little kids play on a playground, if there's things like fences and barriers, kids will actually thrive more than if there are none. That there's something about the safety and the protection for little kids and little human beings that allows us to thrive. The church has done that too well to the negative point. The shadow side of construction is fear. Half of our country lives in fear right now. They are scared that things are changing. They are scared that the world will look different than the safe fences that they lived in. And the fact about those fences is that they were all mythological anyways, right? Those fences are important. We want to start somewhere. We want to start with something solid. We all want to believe in Santa Claus in some way because we want to say that there's something concrete that we can stand on. Where the church has failed, is that we don't allow people to move into the second box, which is deconstruction. And that's a box where you get to ask questions and let things go and doubt and wonder and give up on some stuff. But the church, the shadow side of construction because it's fear is that sometimes they're so scared of darkness, whatever they think that that thing is, that they become the darkness themselves and they become repressive. 
And then over here in the box of deconstruction, what happens is because the church hasn't done a good job of walking us through this process, really of adolescence, what we need are some good solid structures that move us forward in life. And then hopefully what we had are those healthy adults in our life who when we're going through deconstruction are there to say, of course you're gonna be a sophomore in college and you're gonna know it all, right? And you're gonna ask some questions and we wanna be there with you instead of, we're terrified about what you're asking right now. That's a slippery slope. You didn't listen to a Rob Bell sermon, did you? <laughs> but the shadow side of deconstruction is anger. Both come out of hurts. Both come out of wounds. And both are needed in life. We need construction and we need deconstruction. And even over here in deconstruction, there are some things to be angry at. And we're angry at those things because the pendulum has swung. But that is not the final place to find your identity. The final place you find your identity is in the third box of reconstruction. It's a third way. It's always what Jesus is leading us towards. It's not to stay in your conservatism, and it's not to believe that the final effort of humanity is liberalism. It's this other way of saying, you need both. There are both of these things that will help humanity thrive, that will help you thrive, but the only way that's gonna happen is if we move into a third box and that we can honor how both of these things have shaped our identity and have given us a sense of belonging, but they are not the final resting places for where we're going. So with that in mind, I think that we can look at the story of the prodigal son and we can see that Jesus is speaking to the spectrum of these realities. Jesus is speaking and telling a story about a father who's dealing with a son who is completely in a box of deconstruction who is letting everything go, who is wondering, who is left at all thinking that there was no one there to walk this son through that process. And there's an older son who's doing everything right, who's incredibly terrified, who's living in fear, who thinks that all of the answers of God, right, are gonna come because he keeps going to church on Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday or whatever the things that you're supposed to do. But this story is about freedom from those things into a new and bigger identity in which we find ourselves truly belonging with God. So follow along with me in Luke chapter 15. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons and the younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all of his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have enough food to spare and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and I am and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. And here's where the drama's at. The drama of good news is when any of us forget the reality that we are sons and daughters of the divine. Because we are so adamantly concerned about our box that we would forget where the real trajectory of our lives is actually going. And one of the favorite local priests in the area says that we come into these spaces and we gather together to remember Christ well so that we can reverse the amnesia of the world. 
We can reverse our amnesia and we can remember again well that we are all children of this God. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him and kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandal for his feet and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and is now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. Come on, right? Yeah. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. And when he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother's back, he was told. And your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. And the older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a thing, a single thing you told me to. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes and you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. And his father says to him, and here's where all the magic's at. Look, dear son, you've always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. It's a reminder for all of the fear and all of the worry of those in the first box. It's okay. You are so terrified about how the world is changing. You are so terrified about what's going on out there. But all that I have is already yours. There is nothing to fear. It is not a dog-eat-dog -dog world. Things will evolve. Things will move forward. Because when you take a million away from infinity, it's still infinity. And that's the story that the father's trying to say. Because of a celebration over here, that doesn't mean that your life is any less. This is the lesson for you. You can celebrate the LGBTQ community and you can still be celebrated as well. You're not losing anything in this narrative. In fact, all that's happening is that we all get to celebrate together. And isn't that a more compelling way to live your life? For your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. I'm excited that we get to do a little joint sermon together, that Darren is a master at understanding what identity is. He is an Enneagram coach for the Christian Closet Plug. Go check it out. <laughs> and he's somebody who understands this concept and works within these realms about helping people figure out their identity. It's been a ton of fun going through this process of figuring out this passage with one another and hearing his own story and his own process and this reality that as we talk about these stories, we're not talking about stories that happened 2,000 years ago that these stories are worth something because we're talking about the transformation that's happening in our lives right now. And all these stories point to, right, is that God is okay with your process. God is okay with wherever you're at. If you are in a box of construction and living in fear and you have all these things going on, this God will remind you it's okay. If you are in the box of deconstruction and rage against the machine, burning down the fucking house, it's okay. There's no kids in the room, is there? I do this sometimes. <laughs> and praise God for that. And so identity and belonging is where we move to. And Darren's going to lead us from there.
Darren McKenna, everybody. Yeah. All right, well, let me be clear what this is not about over here, all right? We're talking about when you hit rock bottom, but you'll see it when we get there. We just had to get that out of the way, because I know that's going to derail me. All right. So now let's get into the Bible, you nasties. OK. Uh, so talking about this. Talking about this story, I love getting into this and understanding the evolution, the journeys that these two sons go on. Because the reality is, we all go on these journeys. And just because one son left and the other son remained doesn't mean that they both didn't have their own journey, right? So we're all in this process together, going on journeys together and figuring some things out. But what's happening in this story is we see a younger son who is not content with what he's been handed in his life. He finds that he's rejecting something, a way of living, a person that he's supposed to be. But we see this older son who finds something in this narrative that he's able to hold on to and maintain and stay and do the thing that he was always supposed to do. And what we're talking about, this isn't in the scripture, but we have to look underneath the text, is that there's a script for what these sons are supposed to do in their life. There is a narrative that they're meant to fulfill. There's a space they're meant to occupy. These sons are supposed to be sons to their father and work in the fields. They're supposed to be managing other workers and building wealth and building the family name and passing it down and having kids and all these things. So there is a narrative that each of these sons recognized growing up in the same family that one of them was able to embrace and the other had to reject in some way, shape, or form. Now, the first thing I want to say is just because you embrace the narrative doesn't mean it's good for you. But also, just because you reject the narrative doesn't mean that that's a good path for you either. Because what we're doing in this story is we're not looking at this to be able to judge the sons of which one is good and which one is bad. Is the younger son 50%, 51% good or 51% bad? We're meant to look at these stories and just recognize that this is true. It's less about what's right and wrong and more about this is how the world works. Some of us are born into scripts and narratives that we're able to take on into ourselves and move in that narrative and continue it on. But other of us are born into this world with narratives that we cannot bear, right? But what are those narratives today? They might come from your families. They might come from your churches. They might come from your, your country and your societies. They're scripts about your gender or gender identity, your sexual orientation, your socioeconomic status. There are scripts about your race and ethnicity and your immigration status. There are all scripts that we swim in. We don't have the opportunity to not be inside those. Wherever you go, there is a script for these different pieces of your identity. Wherever you go, whatever culture, it means something for you to be a male-identified person in this culture. How you function, how gender function in your family taught you something about how you're supposed to function in your life. My sexual orientation, my queerness, there was a script for that in the church. And it was a, don't touch it, don't look at it, don't even acknowledge it. These are the waters we swim in, these are the waters these sons were swimming in, that they were supposed to do something, do something with their lives. And this is what brings us to our story. They both go on journeys, they both are handed these scripts, and the younger son rejects it. Now, the reality is, is through it all, the son always has choices he can make. He, take, he decides to take the money. He decides he can't bear the weight of whatever this, this narrative is telling him he should do. So he takes the money, and he decides to go. 
And this, we all know the story. This is every pastor, every Southern Baptist pastor's favorite part. He wanders, he squanders, he sells everything. That's, you heard it. Anyone else hear that? Is that just me? All right, all right, okay. I got a little validation there. But this is what he does. He goes out into wild living. And so many people make that the point. No, we're not to judge the son for doing that. We're supposed to recognize that the choices that he made led him to a specific place where he was wallowing in pig shit and looking at their food saying, I wish I had that, and recognize that this is where our choices can lead us if we don't know how to mature and to work in moderation and if we're not doing it out of a place of health. That's the point. It's not to shame the son who goes off into wild living. Because rock bottom was not when the son found himself wallowing in pig shit. It was actually when he could look his father in the eye and say, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. That is rock bottom in our lives. But the older son also has this narrative too. The older son, he decides to stay. He does it right. He works for his father. He makes money. Maybe he has a wife at this point. We don't know. Maybe he has the kids and the family name is being passed. We don't get to see that narrative as much. But what happens is the fruit that is born out of his decisions and his choices is resentment. It's anger. It's jealousy. It's an internal posture. It's the inside of the cup being dirty that Jesus seemed to talk about all the time. Right? So his journey of staying also bore fruit. The choices he made led to something himself. His rock bottom moment is when he can look his father in the eye on that hill outside the house and still refuse to go in because he no longer recognized his family. He had operated in a system of understanding that if he worked hard, he served his dad, he slaved away, did all the things, that that is what made him a part of the family. And as soon as the younger son could come back and that he could be celebrated without doing all of those things, that's when he realized he had no idea who his family was anymore because he had been working to be a part of a different kind of family. And that, my friends, is another rock bottom moment. So I'm gonna talk a little bit about my journey into that because I grew up as a queer white male in the Southern Evangelical Church. So two pieces of those, that identity, we're doing great. I had privileges, I had access. If I could just conceal, don't feel. Thank you, Elsa, for that language. We were going to be fine, friends. (laughs) Y'all didn't know Elsa was gay. I'm just saying. Um, So I grew up in this world where I had two pieces of my identity tell me that I'm okay. But I had one piece of my identity that particularly in the church, the, the script for me was don't see it, don't smell it, don't touch it, don't acknowledge it, don't experience it, don't tell anybody about it. Just leave this thing over there and everything will be fine. This is the script. And what living, and the thing is, is I'm actually more like the older son because I embraced that script. This is how I know that just because you embrace it, it's not healthy for you. I embraced this script to ignore this thing and it bore the fruit of loneliness in my life pretty quickly. In high school when people were having conversations that I couldn't fully enter in on because I didn't wanna like out some part of me And so I had to like stay away, so I moved into loneliness. And then further on in college, when I decided to take on that loneliness and share and open up with some people that I'm attracted to men and to women, and I don't know what to do about that. I got the edge off the loneliness, but still what I realized is as I exposed myself, I still believed that I was inherently disordered 
and I started to see the, the fruit of shame come out in my life. I continued to make choices to keep on holding on to this narrative that bore negative fruit in my life, where I would become resentful and angry, lonely, shameful, and just in general, tired. This is the fruit of the choices that I made, given what the scripts that I was given and how I embraced that, right? This is what happened in my story. So my, I end up in call, after college coming on as an apprentice to a college pastor at a, a church in Atlanta, and I start working as a pastor, and I start realizing I, I love this thing, ministry. I love helping people. I love, ironically enough, helping people come into their identity of knowing that God loves them, LOL. And I'm doing, I'm doing this work, and I'm loving it, and I'm realizing I'm building into this own narrative that as long as I help people, as long as I serve the church, as long as I help God, I can at least be able to stand in church confidently, knowing that if a part of me doesn't quite fit the script of church, I'm at least doing all the right things, just like the older son. As long as he can do all the right things near the house of the father, he can still remain a part of the family. And so a couple years ago, I found out, we'll put gently, that I wasn't allowed to stay at this church as I was working out my identity. And I actually don't believe that's the rock bottom of my life. Because what happened is once that was out of the picture, I realized that I didn't believe that I was okay in the eyes of God. I could no longer, I have had so many layers of doing things and believing things and thinking things that I could no longer see that before anything began, I just belonged. So I want to talk about this with some Enneagram language because this is a journey we all go on. You don't have to use the Enneagram to go on this journey, but I'm going to use that language for today. That's what I like. So, and if en- you don't know what that is, we're a cult. Yeah, we're so. an Enneagram cult. <laughs> <laughs> if someone randomly shouts out a number one through nine, it's just that. Don't worry about it. Um, so the Enneagram, if you don't know, is a personality typing system where you, the types are one through nine. So each name is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. I'm a two. That's the language you'll hear all the time. Twos, yeah. <laughs> Make the world go round. Okay. Um, so that's, that is what it is. And each type is, mo- is defined by how it's motivated, its passion in the world. So a two's type, its definition is the need to be needed. I am motivated by how you need me. So if you just say, Darren, I really need you to do this, I'm like, okay, I will. (laughs) I was waiting for you to ask. Um, But we all, all these numbers have this different. Fours are need to be unique. Fives are need to perceive. They want to understand and collect all the information. We're not going to go through all that. That's not the point of this. But that's helpful because I'll probably throw some numbers out there. I just want you to know. Uh, But what Enneagram wisdom teaches us has more to do about in the first half of our lives, we grow and we start getting messages from our family and from our friends and from the communities we embody about how people validate how we interact in the world with other people, right? So we start hearing things and this is not bad. This is how we develop identity. This is how we differentiate ourselves from each other and how we understand that we have a role in this world. And we understand that we have a function and that we play a part. It helps us understand that we belong. But what happens is over the years, these things, this inner passion, this motivation starts to build up a little bit more and it becomes patterns of behavior. And then it becomes habits. And then it becomes instinctual choices that you make that you don't realize you're making, always in accordance with that 
thing, that desire, that motivation you have. And ultimately, what it comes to is as we go through the first half of our life, we're building this personality, we're building this ego, we're having experiences that tell us we're supposed to be this way and act this way, and at some point we recognize that this way of operating with the world doesn't always work, and actually sometimes it harms you. So as a two, in my need to be needed, I actually start to hurt people because I manipulate them. I try to help people so that they might love me, and I try to earn affection, and I try to be the person that you love. I want to be seen as this thing, so I manipulate you to see that in me. And these are the patterns that build up over time, and what this is called in kind of this contemplative language is our false self. So for all of you Enneagram nerds out there, the reality is, is the number is exactly the thing that you're not. The two is my type, but I am not a two. Two is how I've learned how to interact with the world. This need to be needed. This is how I figured out how to be validated. But beneath that is a free person who is able to make choices outside of that inherent motivation. And that is the work of the Enneagram. They talk about this, as you build your ego, at some point it comes to a head and you have to learn that this is not it, fam. This is not the way that you can work in this world. This is not gonna work in every situation and you're gonna hurt people, including yourself. So you start doing the work to recognize those patterns. And you start looking where you're being unhealthy and negative fruit is coming out of your life or is going spewing sideways into other people's lives. That's the work of the Enneagram and it's what all of our work is. It's our work to take an honest look at what we've been given in life, the scripts, see how we've learned to embrace or how we've learned to reject them and see the kinds of patterns and choices we continue to make. And we have to recognize those so we can start to choose to not do them anymore. Because what we're looking towards, what we're working towards is health. We're working towards maturity. And health and maturity require all sorts of different ways of interacting with the world, right? You can't, I can't always be the needed person if I want to be healthy. That's just not healthy for me. And so we see this journey in both of the sons. Both of these sons built up layers of personality after experience, after beliefs of themselves, so much so that when they were able, they're able to look at their father in the eye and not recognize that they are still their father's son. And this is the journey that we're called to, a long journey home to be with the father and to learn and to peel back these layers and reveal our true self. We have to learn how to peel back our personalities and how we react to certain situations or scripts. We have to learn how to peel back our egos or even not let experience completely define us. It has to be a part of the conversation, but it can't completely define us because beneath all of that, we are truly free human beings who belong to God, who belong to this thing that we have here, a community of people who is a community of love. And we get to work that out together into more and more health as a community. And this is how we're gonna heal the world. And it's going to start with our own internal journey inward and a long, long journey home. So this is what I have to offer you today. Just two weeks in a row of a proud papa bear up here. (laughs) 
They're crushing it. If we're going to move towards this journey of honoring our true identity and who we are, part of that process, particularly for a room like this, is can we begin to understand that we're okay with who God is? And in the story, we get a new understanding of what that means. That for most of us, we grew up with an understanding of a punitive God who is angry at you, who wants to put you in timeout, and who wants to spank you. But this is a story of a younger son who comes home, who forgets his own identity, and this God opens God's arms wide and says, no, I'm not here to talk about you're a sinner and you're this and all these other false identity pieces that you have about your life. I'm just glad that you're back and that I can remind you of who you've always been. Right? And for the younger, for the older son who's in the place of not only forgetting his identity, but also telling other people that they don't get identity as well. This father gets to remind that son of, what are you talking about? You've always been celebrated and all that I have has always been yours. And so part of the shift of our true identity is also understanding that there's a shift in the identity that we see God as. And that if our identity and if our journeys and if our process is okay, then maybe God's okay as well. Maybe we need to have a bigger understanding of who this God is. Not one who is gleefully trying to be torturer in chief, but one who is inclusive and loving and opening up God's arms for the entire world. As Colossians says, that God is reconciling all things. So we're going to end this week in the same way that we did last week. And I would just ask that you would close your eyes. And we're going to take a moment to process, to be still with some of the realities that we've taken in today. And as you're finding yourself, as you're breathing deep, maybe there's a moment that you're going to breathe in and out right now to be reminded of the false identity that you've been telling yourself. And if you can hold that, then maybe as you take a big breath in and as you breathe out, you'll be reminded of who you truly know yourself to be. That you are loved. That God names you a daughter or a son. And that the God of the universe is not scared of where you are at, but thoroughly enjoys you. And if that can be true about you, then what could be true about this God of the universe? Not a punitive God who is excited about punishing you. Not a God who delights in putting you in timeout. But a God who celebrates your identity, celebrates your process and your journey, and reminds you that you have always belonged. God, we thank you for this sacred space, the reminder of these good things and this good news in Jesus' name. If you find those same three or four people that you were with groups, in a group with before and answer this question, what is a step that you can take that will help you own your identity? Enjoy.
Thanks for listening to the New Abbey podcast. For more information, visit us on the web at www.newabbey.org.